0: Hello and welcome to this episode of Surety Today. Surety Today is a live monthly call-in podcast presented by the Surety and Fidelity Law Group at Wright Constable and Skeen, located in the Mid-Atlantic region. Surety Today is offered to Surety Cleans professionals and is designed to keep you informed about important issues in the industry.
1: Here is your host, Michael Stover. Okay, hey, well welcome everyone to this edition of Surety Today. My name is Mike Stover and I'm a partner in the Surety and Fidelity Law Group here at Wright Council on in Baltimore, Maryland. And today I'm joined by my partner, Rich Pleasure and our associate, Justin Thatch, who are both located in our Richmond, Virginia office. We wanted to take a minute to, uh, as we get started here, to recognize all of the pain and the suffering associated with the pandemic Now, the nationwide unrest regarding the death of Mr. George Floyd in Minneapolis while in police custody, the unspeakable loss of life and economic upheaval caused by the pandemic and the pain and injustice of racial and economic inequality are issues that our country is going to have to come together over to mourn, to rebuild, to change, and to heal. These are things that are going to take nationwide resolve and efforts over a long period of time Our hearts, thoughts, and prayers go out to all of us as we move forward. But we are just humble surety lawyers, and our goal today is just to try to provide a small semblance of normalcy, uh, a half hour just to focus on our industry. We can fight the battles that need to be fought with the rest of our time, but now we're going to just be surety lawyers for a bit. The title of our presentation today is Indemnity Agreements, Useful Provisions and Potential Pitfalls for handlers. As always, we'd like to open our episodes with a big thank you to everyone for your support of Surety Today. We couldn't do this without you. We ask that you pass along our contact information to any colleagues who you think may be interested in calling in or checking out one of our podcasts. Remember that all of our prior episodes of Surety Today are always available anytime in multiple locations. On the Surety Today page, on our website at wcslaw.com, As a podcast at iTunes, uh, Google Music, Stitcher, or Podbean, just search for uh, Surety Today, and on our microsite at suretytoday.net. As always, we've muted the line during the presentation to avoid the background noise, and we'll unmute the line at the end for any questions. As I just mentioned, today we're talking about indemnity agreements. Indemnity agreements are a staple of the surety industry, and such agreements have been routinely upheld and enforced by courts all across the country. While commonplace in the industry, the form of such agreements can vary significantly from company to company or from time period to time period within a company. Often you'll see the older indemnity agreements that are not as robust as more recent agreements. Further, there are variations in indemnity agreements between commercial surety and contract surety. This is to be somewhat expected, of course, because commercial surety does not typically involve contract balances and project completion obligations, et cetera. Still, many of the uh, commercial surety indemnity agreements are pitiful. Frankly, they're an embarrassment to the term indemnity agreements. Some are just a few paragraphs in the application for the bond. It's always disheartening as, as a lawyer to get that mini indemnity agreement and know that so many really great rights for the surety and the obligations of the indemnitors are just not going to be applicable. Notwithstanding, indemnity agreements are an extremely important tool for the claims handler Addressing claims and in dealing with principals and indemnitors, I commend to everyone the uh, ABA FSLC 2008 book, *The Sureties Indemnity Agreement Law and Practice*, second edition, of which our very own uh, George Backrack was one of the editors, along with uh, Tracy Haley and Marilyn Klinger. It's a very comprehensive and thorough examination of virtually all of the issues relating to indemnity agreements. Today, Rich will start us off with a discussion about some cases where certain terms of the indemnity agreement were actually used against the surety. Uh, Next, I will talk about some of the the useful provisions of the indemnity agreement, and Justin will finish with an examination of some other aspects of caution regarding indemnity agreements. So now, uh, let me turn it over to Rich to get us started. Rich. Thank you, Mike. Good afternoon, everyone. A few of the provisions
0: in an indemnity agreement which may actually be used against the surety uh, include the power of attorney, the right to settle, and the assignment clauses. The argument is that these provisions confer upon the surety both the right and opportunity to defend its principal. In cases where the surety agrees to be bound by a judgment against its principal, the entry of such a judgment is a condition precedent and is usually binding on the surety. No arguments. However, in those instances in which the surety has secured the performance of some obligation but has not agreed that part of the condition of the bond to be found by a judgment against the principal, the result is less predictable. Traditionally, the focus to determine the binding effect of a judgment against the principal was on the merits of the controversy and where the surety had notice and an opportunity to defend. However, some more recent cases focused on the binding effect of a judgment by default against the principal. With the turn of the millennium, a dramatic step occurred under Alabama law with the decision in Drill South, uh, a federal case that came out of the 11th Circuit. The problem was compounded by the Supreme Court of Virginia, following Drill South's lead in American State Casualty versus uh, C.G. Mitchell Construction. Both cases However, are almost identical. In both Drill South and American Safety, the claimants filed suit against the principal and the payment on surety. In Drill South, the principal filed, failed to file any responsive pleading whatsoever, but the surety was actively defending its own interests. In American Safety, the principal and the surety, the, the counsel, filed responsive pleadings on their own behalf. Subsequently, an order was entered permitting the principal's attorney to withdraw his counsel. The principal's registered agent then resigned, and its corporate existence was terminated. Now, this is where it gets interesting and a bit troubling. In Drill South, the claimant obtained a judgment by default against the principal after the surety advised that they took no position to default judgment, provided that the judgment was not deemed binding. Jury. Several months later, the court nonetheless concluded that the surety was bound by the default judgment and awarded summary judgment against it. On appeal, the surety argued it could not be bound by a default judgment against the principle, because such judgments are not binding upon a surety actively defending in the same action. Although the court expressly acknowledged the existence of the authority supporting that position, it rejected the authority, simply concluding, without elaboration, that it did not find the reason persuasive. It also observed that despite an order directing any party wishing to be heard on the request for default judgment, the surety chose not to defend its principle and offered no evidence on the principle's liability. So Drill South dramatically changed the traditional approach by extending the rule finding the surety with default judgment when it had both notice and opportunity to defend to include actions in which the surety is actively its own. In American safety, the Supreme Court of Virginia extended drill south to bind the jury that the default judgment imposed every sanction against its principal. Despite the fact that the principal was no longer in existence, the claimant scheduled its corporate deposition. No one appeared. It obtained an order compelling the appearance of the corporate designee to the principal and award. Granted motion and requiring a corporate designee to appear. Despite the order, no one appeared. The court awarded a judgment by default against the principal for failure to comply with the prior discovery order. The court then awarded summary judgment against American safety, noting that American safety never challenged the fact that it had noticed the claim and that it had the right and opportunity to defend the principle. Now the common thread running through drill Safety and American safety is the court's reliance upon the surety's indemnity agreement. Both courts reviewed and concluded that the power of attorney, the right to settle, and the assignment clauses in the agreement, right and opportunity to defend their principles. American safety further reason that the surety could have designated the corporate designation for its principles. This is consistent with the Second Circuit's holding in Hutton Construction versus County of Rockland uh, that the indemnity agreement un- Appointed the surety as the principal's attorney in fact, power and exercise all rights assigned for the surety agreement on the contractor's default on the indemnity. Agreement. Now, there are a couple of recent cases uh, briefly mentioned. The court in Angelo I. Construction versus Potashnik Construction expressly declined to extend the bill south to the Eighth Circuit. In that case, the filed an answer on its own behalf and actively defended, but the principal did not. Default was noted by the clerk. Matter was trial as against the surety, who subsequently prevailed. The then obtained a default judgment against the principal. On appeal, the Eighth Circuit observed that Drill South involved a judgment by default and without objection by the surety and before the surety fully litigated its own case and expressly declined to extend it to a case which the surety had obtained a favorable ruling before the default judgment It also implicitly recognized that the conundrum created by surety actively defending claims a case in which the principal failed to appear and faced the record of inconsistency. Now a more recent case in 2019 is out of the Southern District of Texas, Harris County Water Control versus Philadelphia Indemnity. Similarly, the obligation in that case, the surety was active pending its own interest. The principal failed to file responsibly. Although the court entered a default against the principal, it declined to award a judgment by default because of the potential for incongruous and inconsistent ruling and prejudice to the surety. Thank God. Noted that the surety could raise arguments, the principal could not abrade. Now, there are a number of cases I've reviewed. I'm not gonna uh, talk about this, but identify the states where I think they will follow drill south and C. D. Mitchell or American Safety. They include New Mexico, Kentucky, Texas, California, Nevada, Georgia, and Missouri. And interesting to note, in one case, which did not rely upon the power of attorney for clauses is the case of McAlpine versus Zangradar, Inc. it's a motor vehicle dealer bond case in Nevada, I'm sorry, in New Mexico. There the court observed that the indemnity provided that simply the surety shall have right but not be required to adjust, satisfy, compromise any claim, demand, suit or judgment upon the bond. It considered this language sufficient to convey to the surety the right to intercede on behalf of the principal at the default judgment hearing. So these cases highlight the importance of the need for a surety to immediately and actively oppose any motion for the entry of a default judgment against the until it has had an opportunity to present its evidence in defense of the claims. And as soon as the suit rolls in, I think security needs to assess whether or not that possible principles and what that principle intends to do. I'm chasing that even today will help in about
1: an hour. Right. Okay, Rich, thanks. Uh, sorry, I was getting some notices that there was some feedback on on your presentation. Uh, fortunately, Rich, I think is at his home and in Richmond and Justin's at his home and I'm in my office so no way we could really address it but I uh, apologize for that. But anyway, uh, proceed with my section of the presentation. In May, uh, last May episode of Surety Today, I discussed a lot of the financial and economic data that pointed to a potentially rough economy in the coming months. Of course, a rough economy typically translates into increased claims activity for surety subsequently published that economic data in an article and I included the following recommendations for sureties to start considering now. First, sureties should consider requesting collateral. Now, now may, may not be the best time to demand cash collateral, but letters of credit or means on real estate or other non-cash collateral might be helpful might be helpful. If you're currently holding collateral in the commercial sense, you may want to evaluate whether it's sufficient. Surety should consider placing projects on fund control or requiring implementation of joint checks to help ensure the project funds get to the right places. Hard economic times can lead to more robbing Peter to pay Paul scenarios. Surety should consider getting updated financial information from principals or conducting books and records review to try to determine the financial health of the principal and its ability to weather this economy. Surety should consider sending out job status update requests to OBLGs. Try to determine if there are any problem projects. Surety should should expect uh, an increase in bankruptcy filings as companies try to use the bankruptcy process to stay afloat. Surety should file their indemnity agreement as UCC 1 financing statement. Surety should consider using the trust fund provisions in the indemnity agreement to require uh, that bonded project funds be segregated and placed in separate accounts, so that those funds are not commingled with the principal general funds in the event of a bankruptcy or bank sweep. Surety should remember that in many jurisdictions, courts may still be closed, have limited access, or be backlogged from prior closures, and may not be able to provide timely assistance or injunctive relief. Importantly, surety should be thinking in terms of self-help and using the rights in the indemnity agreement or the UCC where applicable. As you can see, many of my recommendations have their genesis in typical provisions of indemnity agreements. My message to the surety industry is this. Now is the time to be proactive. Review those indemnity agreements. See what rights can be enforced now to protect the surety. Think of your indemnity agreement as a shield against the impact of the pandemic. So let's explore some of those useful indemnity agreement provisions. First, let's talk about the trust fund provisions. As I noted, economic data suggests that sureties may see an uptick in bankruptcy filings by principle. One of the key provisions in the indemnity agreement can help sureties is the trust fund provision. Most important, uh or rather most indemnity agreements have a provision that states that all funds from bonded projects held in trust by the principal for the benefit of the surety and the subcontractors and suppliers that perform the work on the project. Generally speaking, the creation of a trust alters the title and ownership of the trust property. Instead of the principal having total and complete ownership over the bond contract fund, for example, upon creation of a trust. The principal becomes the trustee with only bare legal title. And the beneficiaries of the trust, the, surety, the subs, the suppliers, may become the equitable owners of the trust fund. So when a bankruptcy case is filed, pursuant to Section 541 of the bankruptcy code, a bankruptcy estate is created, and by operation of law, all of the debtor's property, wherever located and by whomever held, automatically becomes property of the estate. However, Section 541B of the code The property in which the debtor does not have equitable title, such as funds held in trust, are not property of the estate. Accordingly, most bankruptcy courts hold that trust fund provisions in an indemnity agreement are valid and that the bonded contract funds as trust property are not property of the bankruptcy estate. So those trust fund provisions can be used by the surety to argue, one, that the trust funds that are being held in the estate should be released, Two, that the automatic stay, which applies when a bankruptcy is filed, does not apply to trust funds. Three, that the use of trust funds cannot give rise to a preference fund. So thus the existence of trust provisions can be very beneficial to surety in the bankruptcy context. Whether a valid trust exists will be evaluated as of the date of the filing of the case, and the party asserting the trust bears the burden. Further, the bankruptcy court will look to state law to determine if the trust fund provision creates a valid trust. In the handful of cases where indemnity agreement uh, trust funds have been denied, the issues usually relate to the language of the trust fund provision being insufficient under local law to create that valid trust. So it just goes, it it depends on the jurisdiction. Uh, Next, let's focus on the UCC security interest. One of the primary proactive uh, actions a surety can take now to protect itself is to use its rights under the security agreement provision of the indemnity agreement to perfect secured party status under the UCC. By perfecting a security interest as a secured creditor, the surety may be able to protect some of its interests in the event that there are any gaps in timing issues with respect to the surety's equitable subrogation rights or any, any gaps with the indemnity agreement rights or in the event of a bankruptcy. In addition, courts generally have a better understanding and greater experience with the UCC security interest as opposed to a surety's equitable rights, and the surety may find a more understanding or sympathetic court as a secured party under the UCC. So keep in mind that the secured rights under the UCC and equitable subrogation rights are not mutually exclusive. This is so because the UCC does not apply to equitable subrogation. As discussed earlier, Sureties may need to revert to self-help provisions. Under the UCC, a secured creditor has a number of statutorily authorized self-help rights, including the right to demand from the principal or others holding secured collateral to make payment, release the collateral, or otherwise render performance to or for the benefit of the surety. Uh, Use of self-help rights and, and others under the UCC must be exercised with commercial reasonableness in accordance with the specific terms of the UCC. Properly exercised, the UCC rights can supplement the other rights in the Indemnity Agreement and give the surety a greater reach to protect its interests. Next, let's focus on the surety's power of attorney and attorney of fact provision. Uh, One of the other self-help remedies typically existing in the Indemnity Agreement is the, the power of attorney or attorney of fact provision, particularly when used in conjunction with other rights in the agreement. Now, Rich discussed a moment ago the circumstance where the court used these rights against the surety, but under these provisions, if there's a fault, the surety is granted the power to undertake actions on behalf of and in the name of the principal and indemnitory. Such rights typically include the power to exercise all rights assigned to the surety, including the rights to all machinery, equipment, materials, tools, uh, the right to all sums due or to become due and all bonded and even unbonded contracts, all uh, the rights to all subcontracts, on bonded projects, the right to make, execute, and deliver any and all instruments, documents, papers, including endorsement of checks, sureties have used the power of attorney provision to settle claims, including the principal of permanent claims, execute indemnity deeds of trust that I have filed in land records, uh, letters of direction, joint check agreements, deductive change orders, etc. So don't be afraid to to use that self-help remedy that's in the indemnity agreement when the circumstances uh, merit. Finally, another very useful tool for the surety is the surety's demand for collateral. In many cases, the indemnity agreement will contain a provision that allows the surety to make that demand uh, upon the principal need indemnitors to provide the collateral to secure the surety against potential liability for claims, losses, or damages as a result of having um, issued the bond. Collateral is frequently required as a condition of issuance of commercial bonds, and additional collateral may be required as the commercial relationship continues if additional risk is assumed. Obtaining collateral is a key protection against losses and something that sureties in this economic climate need to seriously consider requesting. Even if the indemnity agreement does not have an express collateral demand provision, sureties can still consider invoking the common law rights of quia or exoneration to obtain collateral from indemnitors. Moreover, in the commercial surety context, the surety has the power of commercial leverage. If the principal and the indemnitors want the bond or they don't want the surety to cancel the bond, the surety has some leverage there to demand that collateral. On the contract side of the house, the surety cannot generally cancel the payment of performance bond once they've been issued. However, in some instances, the indemnity agreement may have a provision that requires the indemnity in order to get the surety's bond released and discharged so that the surety has no further obligations under the bond. This provision could be invoked if the indemnity agreement does not allow for the demand of collateral and would have the same effect, at least with respect to prospective losses. While collateral demand provisions are routinely upheld and enforced, there are some common themes that come up in cases where the court's have balked at enforcing. Uh, first, avoid delay in seeking to enforce collateral demand provisions. One court cited the old equity maximum that equity aids the vigilant and not the party who slumbers on its rights. So no slumbering. Second, you may not be able to rely on the language in your indemnity agreement. Sometimes the agreement will state that if the surety has to move to enforce collateral, the surety is entitled to injunctive relief, or it may provide that the indemnitors agree that there's irreparable harm. In one court's recent decision uh, regarding such language, the court said it was not bound by such terms in the agreement. It was the province of the court to decide whether irreparable harm existed. Third, follow the terms of the collateral demand provision. If a reserve is required to be posted, post it. If You gotta give written notice by certified mail, you gotta do that. If the indemnitors are entitled to a stated period of time to comply, then they gotta give them that stated period of time. All right, so uh, I have made a number of recommendations and pointed to some of the useful provisions in the indemnity agreement. Now I'm gonna turn it over to Justin to, uh, to close us out here, Justin.
2: Uh, Thanks, Mike. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, Just try to fit in a couple of discussion here uh, about from some cases that touch on uh, provisions that Mike was just speaking about um, and how courts can sometimes take some uh, interesting uh, courses uh, even without uh, even with some clear language of the indemnity. So, let me start with one example that actually comes from uh, our firm's home base of Maryland, uh, and that is the Atlantic Contracting Material Company versus Ulico Casualty case from back in 2004. Now, this covered uh, your your pretty standard uh, good faith provision. Now, I just want to quote it briefly for context. It says, the surety quote shall be entitled to reimbursement for any disbursements made by it in good faith under the belief that it was liable or that such disbursement was necessary or prudent. Now, going forward, you will notice that there is one word, and it will come up soon, that was not included in that. But in this case, we generally hear where a surety uh, was faced with a uh, a payment bond claim uh, from, from a sub-slash supplier. Um, and it, when it received that claim, it, it went to its principal asking for information about the nature of this. And essentially, the principal, and we've all been there, either was not responsive or was late in responding. Uh, see, the, the surety paid the full claim. Well, later when it went to seek indemnity from the principal, the principal then uh, decided to voice all this pushback, um, by saying that, um, you know, oh that full amount wasn't owed the work that they did was, was not actually within the scope of what was for something else. The, the trial court eventually um, partially found in favor of the surety and it bought some of the, the principal's arguments. Well, the surety, on appealing to that, the, the intermediate court, the court of special appeals, uh, upheld the surety's full payment under that good faith provision. Um, With essentially the reason being saying that, at least as it understood the law in Maryland at the time, that good good faith payments uh, were valid as long as they were made without fraud. Essentially, if the security was not being fraudulent in making payments, that it could seek indemnity for that payment. Well, and then appealing that up to the Maryland uh, Court of Appeals, the highest court, the uh, court did something interesting in that it, it kind of looked to what some other jurisdictions were doing. Um, Namely, at the time, those jurisdictions were New York, Kansas, Hawaii, Kentucky, uh, and even the federal 10th Circuit. And it essentially read a reasonableness provision into the good faith clause of the indemnity agreement. Uh, and to inform the court's opinion, it said quote, we conclude rather that a standard of reasonableness also should be implied in the good faith analysis of surety's action. Um, so, therefore, it, it, it bounds the good faith standard by a reasonable standard rather than a, a broad or an outright bad standard. I think what's helpful uh, is, is that they, they created a four-factor test looking at it and what it The four factors to look at about whether a surety is being reasonable was, one, what were the obligations of the surety under the bond, two, uh, did the principal make more than generalized the comments that the surety did not claim, three, the level of cooperation or lack thereof by the principal, or the thoroughness of the investigation. And the thing that was interesting about that case is that the court ultimately found that security did act reasonably so that was a case where the case that we had a court and judges finding um, I guess a factual circumstance for them to apply a new legal standard uh, that either wasn't in existence before in that jurisdiction and wasn't clear from the plain language uh, of the, um, we're getting a little bit short on time but I just want to talk about one other interesting example um, that talks about this uh, right settlement provision. And this comes from the bond safeguard insurance company versus award um, decision from the 11th circuit uh, back in 2012. And this is interesting because it, it discussed an uh, addition to the your, your classic indemnity agreement language. And it, it, the, the addition was key. It says, uh, the indemnity agreement said, sure the after consultation with the principal shall have the exclusive right to determine for itself in the indemnitors whether any claim or suit brought against the 30 principal shall be settled or um, and the court really strongly looked at that after consultation with the principal language that was actually added in it was typed into the standard indemnity language and there what the court found under Georgia law was that that created a condition precedent to re- to the recovery of indemnity. Now what made this kind of an interesting decision is here is actually the surety when it got the claims it meant the principal to discuss the default and the claims. However the, the court did not consider that in the courts view consultation essentially meant that the, the surety had to get the principal's blessing um, or agreement to then get, move forward to then settle or defend a claim, and because the principal did not, uh, and because the surety did not get that consultation or I uh, guess firm agreement from the principal, that the surety could not uh, recover the for that, that was paid out, um, which was just interesting that it kind of seems to cut against your spirit, the exclusive right that the uh, settlement agreement provides in the surety. Um, kind of a lesson learned from that is always aware and keep an eye out for any, uh, changes in language that might come, uh, some indemnity provisions that might alter uh, the nature of how you think it works or should work because you just never know how a court is going to treat that or look at that uh, in any given circumstance. Um, Really briefly, I just want to touch on one interesting case uh, back from the 70s in Alabama that concerns a waiver of indemnity. And this uh, contained a situation where um, the the, the indemnity agreement, of course, had the the requirement that if the indemnitor wanted to uh, waive notice or, or waive liability its liability under the indemnity anyway. agreement. Uh, it had to do so uh, in writing by certified mail to the surety within a certain amount of time. Well, in this case in Alabama, this is Reliance Insurance versus tax Construction, back from the late 70s in Alabama. We had a situation where surety, essentially bond manager, kind of intermediate level a uh, claims person, came down and met with the indemnitors and his agent in person. After looking at the indemnitor's financials, he said he, he saw, quote, no reason for them to continue as indemnitors. Well, even after that meeting, at no point did the indemnitors do what the uh, indemnity agreement required them to do, which was confirm that or send in a writing to the surety confirming that they wished to disavow their liability well the matter went to trial and was ultimately held that the oral release by that bond manager of the entity was then binding on the surety uh, and interestingly that case got kind of complicated because that bond manager actually passed away by the time the case uh headed trial uh, but uh, it was interesting that they, they found that despite the clear requirement in the indemnity agreement What a indemnitor had to do to waive its liability that an oral release by the surety was held binding. Uh, So with that, uh, I will pass it back to Mike for some closing remarks.
1: Okay, thank you, Justin.
2: Uh, Before I open up
1: the line for any questions, I want to let everyone know the next edition surety today will be on Monday, July 13th, 12:30 at 4 Eastern Time. Ordinarily, I would mention some upcoming events in the surety industry, but because of the coronavirus, there are no in-person meetings for the foreseeable future. I did want to note that although the in-person Northeast Surety and Fidelity Claims Conference, of which uh, we are a co-sponsor, and was originally scheduled to be held in New Jersey on September 23rd through the 25th, will now be shortened and presented as webinars on September 24th and 25th. The program on September 24th will address surety claims subjects and will likely be presented in a three hour time slot with CE and CLE, including ethics credit. The program on September 25th will be presented in two hours and will also include CLE and CE credit. More details will follow shortly, so please uh, mark your calendars for September 24th and 25th for the Northeast. Again, thanks so much for joining us today. I look forward to speaking with you all again next month. And now I will... Okay, so if anybody has any questions, okay, thank you, everybody. Be safe out there, and uh, we'll be in touch next month. Take care.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Surety Today. Audio recordings and white papers from prior episodes are available on the Surety Today page of the Wright, Constable & Skeen website at wcslaw.com backslash surety-today.